The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. Figures released this morning show the U.S. economy grew last quarter and appears to be steering clear of a recession. The nation's GDP increased at an annual rate of 2.4% between April and June of this year. That's nearly half a percent more than the growth seen from January to March. The International Monetary Fund released its global economic outlook, warning of slowing growth ahead. But there was one bright spot, India, which is set to grow more than 6% this year. That's more than any other major economy. According to the IMF, an increase in Indian domestic investment is key. It also said that growth is set to continue in the years ahead. It's very clear that the signal that the BOJ is sending here is that they are going to allow GDP yields to move higher. And this does have important implications because Japan is the biggest holder in the world of U.S. treasuries. They own more than a trillion dollars of U.S. government bonds. And that is, of course, the risk looking ahead that if we are going to see an asset allocation change where Japanese investors will begin to take money home from U.S. fixed income markets to their own backyard in JGBs where yield levels are now higher. That will, over the coming months ahead, likely have some implications for, in particular, U.S. rates. Since early last year, the FOMC has significantly tightened the stance of monetary policy. Today, we took another step by raising our policy interest rate a quarter percentage point and we are continuing to reduce our securities holdings at a brisk pace. Looking ahead, we will continue to take a data-dependent approach in determining the extent of additional policy firming that may be appropriate. We think we need to stay on task, and we think we're going to need to hold, certainly hold policy at a restricted levels for some time, and we need to be prepared to raise further if, that, if we think that's appropriate. So the staff now has uh, a noticeable slowdown in growth starting later this year in the forecast. But given the resilience of the economy recently, they are no longer forecasting a recession. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. As expected, the Fed raised interest rates a quarter of a point this week, bringing the Fed funds rate to the highest level in over 22 years. Good news on the inflation front and better-than-expected earnings helped propel the major indexes with gains for the week. The Dow had its best run in decades with nearly two weeks of consecutive daily gains. Investors are becoming bullish that with inflation coming down, the Fed could be at the end of its rate-raising cycle. Meanwhile, Treasury yields have been backing up with the 10-year and 30-year bond back up to the 4% level, why the U.S. dollar has been rising lately after a steep decline at the beginning of the month. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Paplavin. Welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. Coming up, Bullseye Craig Johnson joins me. Craig's year-end target of 46.25 for the S&P could become a reality sooner than he expected and may have to revise his target higher as money comes out of bonds and begins to flow back into the market. Craig likes tech, industrials, and healthcare. Later on, Mike McGlone from Bloomberg Commodities joins me. Mike is very bullish both on gold and Bitcoin. And finally, Chris Sheridan and I discuss a topic very few in the market expect. 
which is the return of inflation in the second half of the year, as we discuss eight reasons why inflation is heading higher and not going away. But first, let's find out the stories moving the markets this week with Ryan Poplava. Ryan? The week saw notable developments in various sectors with significant earnings reports, central bank actions, and economic data releases influencing market movements. Overall, all three influences were positive this week, leading to yet another advance in stocks. The leading sector was communications, up 4.9%, helped by favorable responses to earnings from Meta Platforms, Comcast, and Alphabet. Energy materials were the next best performers, up 1.8% each. Down this week were real estate and utility sectors affected by rising rates and the drop in new home sales data, which didn't help real estate. It was a key week with the anticipated central bank meetings from the Federal Reserve Bank, the European Central Bank, the ECB, otherwise known as, and the Bank of Japan on Friday. The Fed raised rates a quarter point, as expected, with comments that a decision will be made month to month, whether to raise more. The policy decision also upgraded economic activity to expanding at a moderate pace. During the press conference, Powell acknowledged the deceleration of inflation from last year, but said there's still room to go with their 2% target being met likely in 2025. Expectations for a second hike remained the same, with the probability for another hike before the year end at around 40%, according to the CME FedWatch tool. The ECB raised rates a quarter point the following day, and language indicated they may be close to being done as well. The Bank of Japan surprised markets Thursday with a Nikkei report the bank could begin yield curve control. Well, Friday, they did just that, allowing the 10-year JGB yield to rise up 1% while maintaining the target rate at half a percent. The information propped the yen up against the dollar initially, and previously on Thursday, there was a small sell-off in risk assets as the news caused some concern over an unwinding of carry trades supporting U.S. assets. Another catalyst that moved rates higher this week was $35 billion of seven-year notes being auctioned Thursday that met soft demand. Selling of treasuries picked up on this as well as on stronger economic data Thursday. The 10-year yield settled back above 4% Thursday, with the two-year note also up to 4.92%. The dollar fell sharply against the yen, but still rose up entirely as higher interest rates moved the dollar higher. On the economic front, most of the news continues to support little indication at this point of a hard landing. Key news was another drop in initial jobless claims by 7,000 down to 221,000, all still very well below previous recession levels. A jump up in the conference board's consumer confidence index to 117 in July from 110 in June. Durable goods orders increased by 4.7% month to month in June. Preliminary results are also in on manufacturing services for the U.S. with the manufacturing PMI up to 49 from 46. Anything below 50 is still contracting, but it's close to break even there. And then we had services decelerating to 52.4 from 54.4. Housing data indicates mixed results with the FHFA housing price index up 0.7% in May, Case-Shiller home price index down 1.7% in May, and a drop in new home sales of 2.5% in June. The advanced GDP report for the second quarter indicated a pickup in growth to an annual rate of 2.4%. That's up from 2% in the first quarter. 
Personal income was up 0.3% month over month in June, following growth of half a percent in May. Personal spending was also up half a percent in June. The price index component was up 0.2%, which was the same for the core as well. Finally, the July University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index dropped slightly to 71.6 from 72.6, while the index is well up from a year ago levels at 51.5. Well, the earnings season is about halfway over uh, with the following data all from FactSet for this week's wrap up. 51% of companies have reported thus far in the S&P 500, 80% reporting earnings above estimates. That's above the 10 and the five-year averages for those numbers. As of Friday, earnings are expected to still be down 7.3% for the quarter, which is slightly higher than estimates were at the beginning of the season. In other news this week, PacWest Bancorp and Bank of California plan to merge in an all-stock transaction. The banking sector has been on a tear this month in July since the bank stress test results were announced. Banks announced several dividend increases. Earnings have been out. And now this merger has seen bank stocks rise. Two key ETFs, the KBE Bank ETF is up 16.5% over the past 30 days, and the regional bank ETF KRE is up 19.3% as investors become more comfortable with bank balance sheets and the prospects for a soft landing. That wraps up the week with communications earnings pushing the sector higher, a Fed moving month to month with the majority of investors thinking the bank is done, a surprise move by the Bank of Japan to manage its yield curve, better economic news, a bank merger, and the earnings season halfway over. Up next, this week's guest technician, Craig Bullseye-Johnson. Well, Chris, we've had a huge run-up, especially in these AI-related names, uh, the mega caps. Uh, I mean, this rally was also unusual in the sense that normally when you come off a bear market bottom, the speculative stuff jumps the most. Uh, The small caps, the unprofitable companies, the stuff which has been more smashed rallies the most. But in this cycle, funnily, uh, because of the AI angle, money basically flocked towards the large liquid mega cap leaders, which were directly going to be beneficiaries of the AI boom. So we've had this huge run-up now in the likes of NVIDIA. I think NVIDIA is extremely overbought. Uh, The chart has just gone vertical and it's up like 400% or something since October last year. Microsoft is flirting with its all-time highs. If you look at the XLK, which is the tech ETF uh, spider, basically that's also flirting with its all-time high. And a number of these mega caps have just gone vertical, which is always worrisome because normally when you have such parabolic moves, they are always uh, followed by at least a pullback or some sort of consolidation. So I would agree that the large cap liquid leaders, the mega caps, are due for some sort of a breather as we enter the seasonally weak period for the stock market. But also, if you look under the surface, you will realize that the rally appears to be broadening out. So, you know, if you look at the IWO, you look at the IWM, you look at the world cloud ETF, cloud computing ETF, you look at the growth stocks in general, they've all built a multi-month stage one basis, which is when prices zigzag for several months and oscillate around the 40-week moving average. And now they are basically beginning to break out into stage two breakouts, which is when stocks register the bulk of their gains. So if you look at the price action, and if you look at the price structure and the charts of all these companies uh, in the high growth space, they they are basically breaking out as of now, out of like 12 to 15 month long sideways trading ranges. And that usually 
suggest that, you know, there's going to be more gains in the weeks and months ahead. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. If you're seeking financial advice and how to invest in today's markets, Financial Sense Wealth Management can help. From setting up or providing advice on 401k plans, managing corporate cash balances, to helping individuals, foundations, and businesses achieve their financial goals. Give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Investors have got to be happy. The Fed met this week. They raised interest rates a quarter of a point as expected. But the market took that in stride and is rallying. Where do we go from here? Are more rate hikes ahead of us? Joining us on the program is Craig Johnson. And Craig, uh, I want to begin once again with your year-end target. We're roughly about 45.88 on the S&P. And I think your year-end target's about 4,600. Aren't we there now? So, Jim, I did miss the bullseye on this one. We have a year-end objective that we put together Back in December of last year, looking for 4625 uh, for the S&P 500. And uh, unfortunately, it looks like we're arriving at this number earlier than what we would originally have thought. We were thinking this was going to be a year end. But that being said, I do still think that there is upside to this market. And we will be coming out in our next Informed Investor publication, establishing the new objective. For now, though, Jim, I'll just say, we see upside from here. We don't think that this market is done. And uh, again, there still is more upside. And Craig, what would that take to publish a new target? I mean, the day you and I are speaking, uh, GDP just came in 2.4%. The unemployment rate is low. Who would have thought with the most aggressive Fed rate raising cycle, probably in about four decades, that the markets would be doing as well as they have this year? Well, Jim, the, the stocks told us months and months ago that the lows were made in October and we were starting to see downtrend reversals off of the highs we had seen in early 22 for most of the major indices. So um, stocks were telling technical people that, hey, we're, we're working and a lot of the negative uh, stuff was priced in last year. The difficult part was just getting that sort of magnitude right as to how far this market is going to go. And if you look at where the next major resistance level comes into play, you've got to go back and look at the old highs in 22. So that seems to be now where the market wants to go to, Jim. You know, up until recently, Craig, we had the S&P going up and we had what we call the Fab 7, the big tech AI stocks that were driving the S&P and the NASDAQ. Now you're starting to see the Dow pick up. And in fact, I think it's one of the best runs in the Dow. I think this is what, day 14, that we've had a continuous upturn in the Dow? It has been 14 days. This is the uh, potentially the longest winning streak in terms of sequential up days for the Dow, looking all the way back to uh, 1900, Jim. So the last 
time we've had any period this length was back in the January timeframe of 1987, which certainly scares people anytime you talk about 1987. Uh, but at this point in time, it's just sort of amazing to me right now that I've got 20% of the companies in the Dow that have made an all-time new high sometime this year. I got 15.51% of all the companies in the S&P that have made an all-time new high sometime this year. And we're seeing just uh, a market where we're getting sequentially sort of money coming back to work. I, I think the reason this is happening this way, Jim, is that at the beginning of the year, people felt pretty smart if they were going to go out and buy short-term treasuries and they were going to get a locked-in 5% return for several month period of time. Um, but now you look at what has happened with the Dow and what has happened with the NASDAQ and the S&P, and I think there's a lot of buyer's remorse buying some of those treasuries back then, Jim. And now that that money is coming due, it's not going back into fixed income. It's going into equity markets and people continue to keep doing that day by day. In speaking of fixed income and treasuries, Craig, we've seen a backup in treasury rates. We've got the 10-year almost at 4%. 30-year is just shy of it. Uh, what's your take on interest rates? And especially given what the Fed said yesterday, uh, they sort of hinted, well, we may hold back, but we're not opposed to raising if it's necessary. What we saw on Wednesday was expected. The street had correctly priced in another 25 basis point hike. And uh, the pace has been clearly, uh, as you mentioned earlier on here in this uh, interview, has been the, one of the fastest pace, if not the fastest pace we've ever seen. Um, and what I see happening here with 10-year bond yields right now is we're probably going to see 10-year bond yields probably be, in my opinion, stuck in a range somewhere between 3 to 4%, and we might stay there for quite some time. It's been a very nice downtrend reversal, a 40-year downtrend reversal. You and I have talked about it on this show in the past. But at this point in time, with the amount of debt out there outstanding, uh, I don't think they can really afford to have interest rates go to 6 7% uh, on the 10-year. So I think you're going to see the inflationary pressures continue to subside. Paul talked yesterday about maybe it's not until 2025 that you'll get the two-year, sorry, the 10-year back to their 2% goal or the inflation rate back to their 2% goal that they've talked about. Uh, but if that is indeed the case, I would think we could see 10-year uh, bond yields stay flat to go slightly lower from here, Jim. What about, uh, Craig, I want to move on to commodities. We've got oil now starting to back up. It's just shy of $80. Some are saying we could hit 90 by the end of the year. I want to talk about commodities. Uh, you know, if you would have told me we would have had highest inflation in four decades and gold would have difficulty breaking its former high, I would have told you you're crazy, but that's exactly what has happened. Yeah. I mean, I look at the price of crude oil and crude oil has definitely been getting a bit of a bid. We do need to see, you know, WTI specifically get back above some of their moving averages and we haven't quite gotten there yet. So there's still some overhead resistance to get through. I have kind of sort of a mixed view on where energy and and crude oil prices are going to go from, I guess, from my perspective, it still is a uh, uh, a bit of a, a show me story for for oil, given the fact that uh, the trend has been lower for an extended period of time, and we haven't broken back above some of those key resistance levels. In terms of other commodities, though, Jim, 
Uh, I'm not surprised to see wheat, corns, finding some strength in those, given the discussions of what's been happening with Ukraine as of late. Um, also looking at uh, copper. Copper looks like it's setting up for a very nice sort of move higher in here, which to me would be a good sign for the economy. Yeah, you've got copper, base metals. And of course, we know, you know, on this green transition, Craig, you need copper, you need silver, you need cobalt, lithium, nickel. Uh, What about base metals? Base metals across the board uh, have been pretty constructive, too. I'm just looking at the charts of all these names, and um, I still think they're constructively setting up for potentially higher moves uh, in here, Jim. Um, But again, if I have to narrow down into one that looks the best, I still think copper is making this really nice ascending triangle uh, ready to sort of make the next leg higher. On the precious side, though, if we think about palladium, platinum, some of those, they really haven't responded quite as uh, strongly. And that's surprising because with auto sales and everything, I know that, uh, what is it, platinum or palladium is used in catalytic converters. That is correct. It would be uh, the, I believe it is, again, I think I believe it is the, platinum that is used into the catalytic converters. Um, But again, the charts, we've just been going sideways, looking all the way back to 2001 period of time to 2003. All we've done is go sideways and we still at this point in time remain below a uh, rising 40-week moving average or a 200-day moving average at this point in time, Jim. Craig, as you look at this cycle, how would you compare this cycle compared to other cycles that we've gone through over the last couple decades? I mean, uh, the Wall Street Journal just did a story today talking about, you know, uh, rates aren't really affecting people. I mean, what person hasn't refinanced their mortgage and gotten a two and a half or three percent mortgage? How many companies did not refinance their debt? So when you kept rates that low for almost a whole decade, uh, people refinance. So they're probably in good shape when it comes to their debt and what they're paying in interest. Yeah, and, and in terms of the cycle overall, if we think about what country in the world was absolutely the most brilliant when they did a lot of long-term financing was was Austria. Remember this, Jim, a couple of years ago, they floated 100-year paper, I believe, at about a 1% rate, and it was gobbled up back then. So uh, they've now set themselves up for a, a very nice financing into the future. But in, in, you're right. The pain for rates going up hasn't been as acute for a lot of people. Uh, you, me, probably most of the listeners here that own a home have probably locked in at a 30-year fixed rate mortgage in the United States at uh, probably uh, call it a three-handle, low three-handle type level, and now they're not going to move. So you're starting to see the need and demand for new housing grow, and you're seeing Lennar and Pulte and others continuing to find good demand, even though rates have gone up and those mortgage rates have moved up to seven, but they are buying down some of those uh, rates for one, two, and three-year period of time. So they still find the demand for that happening. But Jim, this this pain uh, in terms of rates going up isn't really felt in the U.S., you are correct. But if you talk to those that live in Canada, those that live in the U.K. or in Europe, they're not as lucky. They don't have 30-year fixed rates. They've got to come back and renegotiate those rates or re-up those rates uh, or reapply for the loan about every five years. And only under very special circumstances in Canada could you get a seven or maybe even a 10-year fixed rate on a, on a home mortgage. So the U.S. is uh, showing its uh, innovation here once again in the financial markets. 
and the rest of the world is uh, finding the higher rates moving up more problematic for them than it is the U.S. Is that one reason, Craig, that home ownership in the U.S. is higher than in other countries? Because as you mentioned, you can lock in on, you can get a accelerated mortgage like a 15-year, or you can get a 30 and lock in on these low rates, where as you mentioned in Canada and elsewhere, uh, you got variable rates and you're always renewing them. Uh, that is 100% correct, and it makes it... Uh, too volatile an environment for a lot of other parts of the world for people to want to buy homes unless they are the the wealthiest kind of echelon out there. So the U.S. has done a good job in the home ownership, and some say there's still more room to go, and uh, that might be the case. But for a lot of people, I think demand for housing is high because I think a lot of folks recognize that the rates that we have seen over the last couple of years were probably generational lows that may not be back. So locking it in now as much house as they can and uh, watching those mortgage payments uh, sort of inflated away, shall we see, with modest amounts of inflation out there, Jim. It, it It's kind of how the American dream has been built over the years. Greg, given all this, like we said, we, we got a good print on GDP. The unemployment rate is low. Given this scenario, what could go wrong, if anything, in your opinion? Well, I mean, there's always things that can go wrong. It's just what is the likelihood of some of those uh, scenarios that could go wrong? Uh, number one, you still have problems over in Ukraine at this point in time between Ukraine, Russia, and how that is playing out. And there certainly could be some black swans, wild cards, however you like to phrase it over there in that region. The second part of what could go wrong here is if all this money that's been parked in fixed income comes into equities too quickly, um, the equity market could potentially get ahead of itself. It's not there yet at this point in time, but that is one other thing that I'll be keeping an eye on. And the third thing is, is uh, Jim, we keep seeing wage wages being increased across the board. We saw the uh, UPS and the Teamsters raise wages. We've seen uh, dock workers out on the West Coast raise wages. Wages have gone up uh, even in the airlines. So materially across the board, wages are going up. And that is inflationary on its own. So this inflationary battle could take longer to work out. But I do think it's going to happen at a gradual enough pace that at this point in time, it's not having an impact on the economy. But that's probably the biggest wild card down the road, perhaps into 2024, that people are thinking about. But between now and year end, this equity market still goes higher because I don't think you're going to have any sort of uh, meaningful problems with equities for now. So given this, what you're seeing in the market, where would you be putting money? Any sector look or stand out and look attractive to you right now? So, Jim, with our technical research work we've done here at Piper for years, uh, it shows us that we should still be overweight industrials. We should still be overweight technology and also overweight healthcare. Uh, I will just say, though, I'm seeing more opportunities down cap, more of the mid and small cap areas of the market than I've seen in a while. Now, that's not to say that the magnificent seven technology companies uh aren't going to continue to go up. I think they will continue to appreciate, but I think it'll be at a slower pace than what you're going to get with mid and small cap names. I'd also say that um, we can only, and based upon the rules that I put in place here with our work, we can only be overweight three sectors at a time. If I had to give you a fourth, I'd say consumer discretionary is there. But that's very interesting to see the consumer discretionary stocks working at this point in time. Normally, if we're going to be 
seeing a recession like some of the economists believe is still lying ahead, you wouldn't think that these discretionary companies are work would work the way they are. But they are because people are still unemployed and the unemployment rate isn't going up. So um, at this point in time, those are where I see the opportunities and areas that I'd be avoiding in the market are taking some profits. The defensive parts of the market, staples, uh, they continue to uh, sort of roll over from our perspective. And I would also say that stocks like United Healthcare and some of these kind of companies, they've been great companies, but they're traditionally more defensive in nature, Jim, and hence uh, they may not perform quite as well. So would you say this is the time to be in the risk on market? Well, we've been in the risk on part of this market since the lows were made in October of last year. I still think the trend is our friend and we're still going to continue to work our way higher in here. And so from here to year end, again, do we have more upside to go beyond our 46.25? Yes, I do think that that is the case. And technical, from a technical perspective, the most logical spot for this market to gravitate toward to, which would also be the most painful for those that have been bearish, would be to go back and at minimum retest the old highs we had seen in January of 22. So, Craig, your target is 46.25. What or what would cause you to raise that? Is it, you would see something, maybe momentum gathering steam, or as you pointed out, one of your worries is what if this money in fixed income starts coming out of fixed income and goes into the market? Well, that would be uh, further accelerating the trend that's already been unfolding since October. Um, again, thinking about upside targets, what are some of the catalysts for it to go from here? I think it's just the realization that everybody has been sort of buttoned down um, in their mindset toward this market, looking for this recession. And the Fed has just told us the other day that, well, there is no recession baked into their sort of base case scenario. Now, that could be a risk and a worry that that recession does come. Um, but at this point in time, the trend is up, equities are working, Money's coming, I think, out of fixed income into equities. And that's just going to further, I think, underpin the equity market to continue to keep moving higher for now. And the tricky part, Jim, will be coming into what do we think about what we're going to get for next year? And you start looking at the earnings numbers for next year. And whether you're looking at the 500, the 400 or the 600, you're talking about kind of low double digit earnings growth for next year. And those are, I think, are the catalysts for why this market can move higher, especially as we roll out from our 2023 sort of thinking to the 2024 thinking. And finally, if I may, a final question. What about the presidential election cycle? Typically in the third and fourth year have been good years for the market, which is proven out to be in this third year of the cycle. Yeah, I think as we get into 2024, it's going to be super interesting. There's so many things happening in Washington um, that are going to have to get worked through. Uh, you've got trials and uh, hearings for Trump and these kind of things coming up that are going to have to get worked through. But seasonality-wise, Jim, there's only been two periods where we've had a recession ahead of a general, or I should say a presidential election. And uh, that was in 1980 and in 2020. So uh, those were typically disastrous for those parties that uh, were currently occupying the White House. So I think there is a hope to sort of, if there's going to be a recession, if there's going to be some sort of economic turbulence to uh, either get it dealt with this year um, or 
uh, perhaps after the election. But um, right now, it looks like markets are going to continue to keep working. And I think this is going to drag more people into this market, uh, whether they like it or not, because the fear of underperformance, or shall we call it the FOMO, the fear of missing out, is growing among investors uh, at this point in time. All right. Well, listen, Craig, as we close, how can listeners follow you at Piper? If people would like to uh, follow our work, take a look at uh, the Piper Twitter pages. They uh, do populate some of our work there. But also feel free to email me. Uh, You can reach me at craig.johnson at psc.com. All right. Well, listen, Craig, thanks for joining us on the program. It'll be interesting to talk to you in December and just see where we've gone since then. Absolutely. And hopefully we can get back on target. We were a little early um, and we reached our price objective a little early. I don't think anybody's going to yell at me for getting there early. Uh, But at the end of the day, it wasn't on target, unfortunately, at this point. All right. Take care, Craig. Thanks, Jim. The stock market peaked at 1.03 p.m. Eastern, just as the headline came across the tape that the Bank of Japan will be discussing tweaking yield curve control. So the 10-year yield went straight to 4% in response, the US 10-year yield, uh, because we are highly correlated to what goes on there and also in Europe. Plus, if if Japanese investors start repatriating money back into the JGB market, uh, they're the largest foreign holder of US treasuries. And that is what pulled the plug on this rally. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and hit where it says contact us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, we've seen an upward move in commodities lately from gold, silver to even oil. Let's find out where this is headed. Joining us on the program from Bloomberg is Mike McClone. And Mike, just before we went on the air, you're talking about publishing your monthly letter. So let's begin with that. What are you telling investors? The key thing I'm focusing on is this has been an everything rally in virtually all risk assets. And I enjoy hearing the nuances from different sectors, from people from cryptos to people in gold and people in stock market are really pointing out how bullish it is. And I say, well, it's everything that's going up. And I think the key thing to point out is if you look on a 12-month basis, price of crude oil, gold, copper and the Bloomberg Galaxy Crypto Index to July 25th at the time of recording are all about this up about the same 15% on a one year or 12 month basis. And the question is, how sustainable is that? The notable exception is you look at like bonds, the most widely tracked bond ETF, TLT, is down about the same. And we have the Fed still tightening. The key thing I like to end with is it looks like, you know, the Fed tightening is 
in its lagging days, but plunging producer prices may not be in their lagging days. And let's talk about where that's gone, because we're doing this interview on a Tuesday. The Fed is meeting Wednesday. It's widely anticipated they're going to raise a quarter of a point. What's your perception of where they go? Uh, do they go on pause? Are they going to you know, throw out something? We'll just watch and it's data dependent, which still leaves a little bit of uncertainty. Or will they give us direction? I think they're going to remain hawkish. The chairman will remain hawkish. It's typically how he's been. He's still fighting their lagging measures of inflation, personal consumption, expenditures, employment costs, and the C's core. They're all running just below 5%, and their goal is maybe around 4%. The goals get to 2%. So they have a lot of incentive to stay hawkish, and that's what you should see in Fed fund futures. They're expected to peak, you know, we're supposed to get another 25 basis point hike, and we will have gotten probably another 25 basis point hike on Wednesday. And then they're supposed to continue rising. And I think that's going to continue and stay that way. And the key driver has been the stock market. And stock market going up is a, in, been a highly correlated with Fed rate hike expectations also going up. So I don't know how long that lasts, but it's part of the potential lose-lose for risk assets. Now, this has been a great bounce in all risk assets. And the problem is inflation remains sticky. So from our Bloomberg economics view is the fact inflation remains sticky means the Fed should remain hawkish until something substantial shifts their view. And I think the only thing that could do that in the short term to really switch them to pivot and potentially start easing anytime soon would be a, a decent drop in the stock market, which at this point is, seems unlikely. You know, does this strike you a little bit unusual? I mean, this is probably one of the most aggressive Fed rate hikes I've seen probably since 1994 when they doubled the Fed funds rate in a single year. But yet, despite this, this is one of the best rallies that we've seen going into Fed rate hikes. And the only thing they've done is gone from 75 to 50 to maybe quarter point rate hikes. It has been very impressive. I did not think it was going to go this far and this long, but now we've gone this far. What I'm really concerned about is the FOMO. That is the market's going to go up because it went up mantra. And I think this is wonderful if it can, can be sustained, despite the fact we've never, we haven't had this inverted of a curve for 40 years. We haven't had the highest, we have the highest probability recession from the yield curve in about 40 years. If you look at New York Fed probability model and and yes, most people, but the unique thing, Jim, now is at this stage is most professionals and analysts and strategists are saying, no, it doesn't matter. And that's when it does. So I think what we got was a good example of extreme bearishness for good reason. And now we're getting extreme bullishness for bad reason. And that is don't fight the Fed. And still, I look at and look over that U.S. government to, you note know, around 5%. You can get almost 10% in two years. And yes, people who have been invested there have been not doing as well as the NASDAQ. But I still look at this as what that peak we put in 20 and the 21 and the 22 and in the stock market potentially could be similar to the peak in 2000. And that is just based on long-term historical trends. And that's one thing I did recently is I took two weeks off and rehashed a lot of my longer-term 100-year, 200-year reading and studying of cycles. And the bottom line for me is we are in the back end of the biggest dump in liquidity, still dumping globally, with exception of China and maybe Japan, after the biggest pump in liquidity. And the histories of the lessons of history are that that's when the big booms and busts come. So it'd be wonderful if we can get it out of this, we can maintain where we are right now, but history does not shine well on the next 
I would say decade and maybe even year for equity performance, particularly after we've had such an outstanding past decade. That's usually how it works. It's just the pendulum swinging. Now that's equities. I, my main focus is usually commodities and cryptos and things. And then, which one thing we can I'll tilt a little bit, but one thing I'll point out is the significant deflationary forces from commodities is enduring. In my view, we've just had the biggest collapse in commodities since the financial crisis. And also that's showing up in producer price indexes. The PPI index year over year measure is down 3%. Now and then it's only happened three times in history and every time the Fed was easing and the Fed is still tightening. So when you see something like this, where we've had, as you mentioned, probably one of the largest, I would say, fiscal and monetary stimulus that I've seen. I mean, you, you talk about the Fed's balance sheet almost doubling during this period of time, and then the fiscal spending. We've had some luck here. Inflation has come down. I think what we hit 9% and the latest print is 3 But Mike, how much of the inflation coming down has been energy and what happens to inflation if energy goes back up as it's doing now? I'd like to get your take on oil and inflation. Well, let's point out really the main reason inflation went up was the biggest pump in liquidity in the history of mankind. That's indisputable. I've gone back and tested with relevant data. And so inflation pumped on that. And then we had, for as far as energy, we had the perfect storm of this invasion by Mr. Putin of Ukraine, which pumped up crude oil. Very akin to when Mr. When Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, pumped up crude oil and then it dumped. Now, that's true. If in energy prices continue to rise, that's going to be inflationary for inflation. But it's a key fact that that's very unlikely. What does it take for that to happen? We've just had the biggest pump, a big pump in crude oil, similar to the Iraq war. So when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and how that resolved, remember crude oil did not bottom until around uh, $10 in 1991, I think it was. I can double check that. Sorry, 19, a little bit, a little later, I can check it on the screen right now. But remember, it went from 20 to 40 and it, it instilled an enduring bear market. So that's what we've done. We've gone back to an enduring bear market in crude oil. And what did we do? We stimulated everybody's need to create more and use less in most parts of the world. That's just what's been happening with crude oil since the peak in 2008. And last year's peak was below that peak. That's a bear market. So that's a substantial statement. To get crude oil to rally, you need some of the major supply shock type war, which is very unlikely because it's going to do what it normally does. Commodities almost always do that. They go down because we create more with less every day, which helps boost things like the NASDAQ. That's that technology kicking in. But the bottom line for inflation, I think most people missed when they they were last year pointing out the risks of enduring inflation. I think the Fed did miss because what was the reason for that inflation? Massive pump in money supply, which right now, US MEM2 money supply is running at negative 4%. Now, our database only goes back, uh, I think, about 60 years on that. It's never been that negative. And of course, but it doesn't really matter except when it pumps up as much as it did to the peak in. 21, which is around 26%. So the point is the Fed is still taking away that punch bowl. And we have some major signs that we're in the early days of tilting towards recession. But the significant lagging measures, which were mostly pumped by this massive pump in liquidity in the U.S. government writing checks to people so they won't work, are in early days of reverting. You know, I brought this up with several guests. One of the reasons I think the economy has stayed as strong as it is, is all of this fiscal spending. I think, what is it, $7.6 trillion of new spending programs is still working its way through the economy. That's a good point. That and the uh, curtailing of student loan payments, which are coming back. I mean, (laughs) we know plenty of those young people who that's the propensity, the age you want to spend is when you're, you know, just below 30, making decent money, but that's all reversing. And I'm very concerned if this is simply follow the simple rules of economics and cycles. This has been a wonderful 
wonderful stock market rally. But then you look at things now, like the NASDAQ relative or S&P 500 relative is to its 50-week moving average. It's very stretched. In fact, the only time it got more stretched was at the peak in 2000. And we still have the Fed tightening and we have this yield curve that's telling you flashing major warnings. But the key point is now we have most people saying, oh, it's not going to don't have to worry about it anymore, which to me is the opportunity. If you're a money manager, more active money manager like hedge funds, typically you look at these opportunities. If they're smart enough to catch the rally, to start saying thank you. Now that everybody's tilted and people like Mike Wilson from Morgan Stanley have given up on their bearish call and they've all kind of thrown in the towel, yet the fundamentals are still there that the Fed, the most central banks on the planet are still tightening and we're getting very late in the cycle. I'd say caution is warranted. And then, of course, you look over that tree note and you have a nice, there is an alternative. I want to move on to gold, which uh, recently crossed over 2000. It's back down. Silver crossed over 25. And I want to talk about something. One of the biggest buyers of gold that we've seen over the last year have been central banks. They've been accumulating this. The BRICs are talking about eventually having a some kind of currency and being able to, if you, let's say, trade in yuan, if you have excess yuan, go on the Shanghai exchange and exchange it for gold. What's your take on gold here, given that they're moving in this direction? I'm quite bullish on gold. I remain bullish on gold. It's been somewhat disappointing. It's not been able to sustain above $2,000 an ounce, but it has a very good reason to do that. There is an alternative, the stock market, the U.S. stock market outperforming the world, the U.S. two, you know, reeling around 5% Fed fund jumping above five and a quarter. That's pretty significant competition for gold. But once that reverses, once we see a pivot from the Fed, which will be a matter of time, they have to pivot at some point. And once we see the U.S., stock market maybe begin to underperform the rest of the world, which is way outperformed the last decade and revert a little. To me, gold will be the shining star. And also you point out a key thing, the, the deepest, some of the deepest pockets in the planet have been accumulating gold, central banks. So I look at gold just below $2,000 an ounce. I think it's a matter of time it does like it did during the financial crisis when it you know, was bumping up around 1,000 at bottom around 700, and then it peaked around 1,900 in 2011. Gold to me is on a similar trajectory just to change that front handle, which is around to three and in a normal deflation, normal recessionary environment from the U.S. Now, the world is calling and most analysts are now saying we're not even get a soft landing. We're probably going to not get a recession. That's part of the reason gold has reverted. I, I take the other side of that. I think the risk reward is we will get one of the most severe economic resets of our lifetime, basically just reciprocal to the liquidity that was pumped and then dumped. And gold will remain one of the major assets. In fact, I think gold is on the cusp potentially of outperforming Bitcoin. And so the key thing for that not to happen, I think you have to have the U.S. stock market be the best, the only game to go, meaning to continue to perform like this. So let's end with this. Let's look at a hypothetical. On the year, the S&P 500 is up uh, 16, 15, 16%, which is say by then the end of the year, it's either up or down 10% from this level. If it's up and maybe even 5% from this level. That's still pressure for gold. And it's also pressure for the Fed to keep tightening. It's bad for gold. We'll just say it drops 5 to 10%. There's your catalyst. And I think as we tilt towards, and that would be also, that's a key thing you need for the recession to really accelerate, I think, is the stock market to stop putting money in people's hands so they can spend. Yeah. The one thing that I've seen, some of the people have kind of walked away from their recession call. A few smart people are saying, look, the stimulus, uh, the monetary stimulus, the fiscal stimulus, you still have that out there. But those savings that were accumulated during the lockdowns 
are starting to be spent. They will be run out. And they've now moved that recession call into next year. Do you buy that? Well, it's the eventual, it's the perpetual delayed recession, Jim. I, I like the way how you phrase the question because I completely agree it's one that doesn't come. But to me, this is going to be the worst of our lifetimes. Looking at the fundamental foundation for this recession. First of all, before we started this big pump in liquidity from COVID, the U.S. stock market was the most expensive ever versus the rest of the world, versus GDP and versus sales and versus most major measures in history. I mean, parabolic expensive, never reached these kind of levels. It just started to come back a little bit. So I'm worried now that we've switched to a Fed is not going to be there to help you. The Fed put is gone and the market is kind of double dog daring the Fed at these levels. I look at it as good luck. There's time for some reversion and there's that alternative. So I think I've been wrong recently. I was wrong on crude oil for a little while until it collapsed. But I'm pointing out and I'm just reiterating those long-term cycles. There's times to be overweight and times to be underweight. And I think it's tilting towards underweight times for equities and overweight times things alternative like bonds and gold. All right. We'll end on that. And Mike, if our listeners like to follow your work, tell them how they could do so. Well, first and foremost, I'm on the Bloomberg Terminal. I publish there every day. You can find me on LinkedIn, Mike McGlone, Bloomberg strategist, macro strategist. And I'm also on Twitter at Mike McGlone 11. All right. Well, listen, Mike, as always, thanks for joining us on the program. Have a great rest of the summer. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888 that's 888-488-486. 3939 or go to financialsense.com and click where it says contact us. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and strategists from around the globe, go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense News Hour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management Team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour be advised that you invest at your own risk